0: Morning. Our subject this morning is Christian adoption. What does it mean to be adopted into the family of God? What are some of the significance of that fact and what are some of the implications of that fact? It's a huge doctrine. It has significance beyond my ability to communicate, especially in the 2 hours I've been given to preach. So we're just going to touch upon this subject this morning. I want to tell you this morning that this is sweet nectar that is ripe for the harvest of all of God's children. If you find no comfort, no joy in this doctrine, I want to warn you at the onset of this discussion this morning that something's wrong with your soul. Yours is a serious malady that needs attention. I would encourage you to be honest with yourselves and with your God this morning as we look into his word. If this doesn't resonate with you, come and see one of us. Please don't go on pretending this morning. My hope and my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will come and join us as we look into this wonderful doctrine. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord our God, we're so thankful for not only our salvation, but for our adoption as sons, as daughters. That as we just read in Romans, that we can cry out to you, Abba. Daddy, what a privilege we have. We thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, the Apostle John, he's one of my favorite apostles, one of my favorite New Covenant writers. He was thrilled with this concept of seeing God as his Father, and you see it all through his writings. I just picked a couple of passages, but for example, if you go into the Gospel of John, you can see in John chapter 14, which I call the comfort chapter, 24 times the apostle relates to God as Father. And you see the New Covenant is entirely revolutionary in that sense that this idea of calling God Father, very unique. It's a blessing that we take for granted in our age. But even take this, this passage here, and this verse 17, just again, as Hod tried to do, put Romans chapter 8 in the context of the entire book in 30 seconds or less. This is that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that most of us are familiar with this passage, but in case you aren't, this is the time when, Mary has gone to administer uh, some post-death rites on Christ's body. And she finds the tomb empty. Remember? She's greeted by two angels, and and uh, suddenly she's greeted by what she thought was a gardener, and she suddenly, uh, by the exchange of words that took place between Mary and Jesus, she realizes that she is the very first human being to see the risen Lord Jesus. It's a great passage. But look at the great words that are contained in that verse. Jesus says, stop clinging to me. I love that. Don't you love that? It expresses the heart that was overflowing, burst forth with joy that she was able to see the Lord again. Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. I don't know if Mary detected the significance of that doctrinal statement that Jesus just made. My Father and your Father. There's another passage. Um, I guess I don't have to turn around. I can stand back and look at this monitor here. John, in his first epistle, this wonderful verse, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Look at verse 2. Beloved, now... We are children of God. He has not yet appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him. Because we will see Him just as He is. You notice how John's emphasizing the we here, right? John is thinking back about his own background. You know who John was? You know, we have this picture of John because of Da Vinci's, you know, uh, leaning on the breast of Jesus. And we have this idea almost of an effeminate John. John and his brother James, Jesus gave him a nickname. Does anybody know what the nickname was? Sons of Thunder. Why? They were hotheads. John was a hothead. He lost his temper. He lost control of himself on a regular basis. Not only that, he was a narcissist. You know, we, we, we can read in the Gospels where, where James and John are walking along with Jesus and they're saying, uh, Lord, can we make a deal so that when you go to glory, you know, we can be closest to you and we can kind of be elevated amongst those uh, the other apostles. You know, he's sort of self-centered. And now John's saying, You realize what a unique experience this is? Not only is the term revolutionary that I can call Jesus, I can call the Father, Father. I can call God Almighty, Yahweh, Father. And I can call Jesus my brother. John says, my background, I was nothing. I was less than nothing. I was, I was under the bondage of sin. Now I can call God Father. What a what a complete switch, a changeover that occurred here. There's passages in Hebrews, and again, you know, cherry pick. I just picked a few of them, and 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 if you get it, if you're taking notes, verses nine to fourteen to get the whole drift of this. But look at verse ten. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things and bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. If your background is a little bit like the Apostle John, where you were narcissistic and you didn't have control over your temper. What what an amazing thing that Jesus is not ashamed of you or me. Let that soak in. You know, when you read these things, could you just meditate on the word, chew on it for a while? He's not ashamed of us. Boy, I'll tell you, there are sometimes when I live my life in, in ways that I'm ashamed of myself, let alone thinking that Jesus is not ashamed of me, and he's not ashamed to call me his brother, it's amazing, wonderful, hopefully it moves you as it moves me. You know, we throw, we throw this term saved around. What does it mean? We talk about being saved. And our salvation is not just that we're delivered from eternal separation from God. That's good news. But, we are also adopted into the family of God. We're sons of God. Daughters of God. Children of God. That's great news. Amen? You know, I don't know, children, if you've ever seen courtroom on television. What is a courtroom like? But consider for a moment the courtroom of of God's judgment. And consider that you're the defendant. That means that you're the one that comes into the courtroom in handcuffs and in leg irons. And in that courtroom, there's an accuser who stands and accuses you of all of your crimes. You would say, well, I'm only five years old. I don't have any crimes. Well, maybe you do when you consider God's law. Every time you've rebelled, every time you've screamed at your parents, it's a crime against God. So imagine, if you will, you're going, coming into this courtroom and your hands are, your Wrists are bound together with handcuffs. Your feet are in leg irons. And you listen to the accuser as he stands up and he goes down one by two, by three, by four, by 600, by 700, by 800 crimes that you've committed. And you know that you're guilty. You know that you're guilty. You know that you don't have a defense. And it comes time for the judgment to be pronounced And you're told to stand and to approach the judge's bench. It's a little bit like this. And you approach the judge's bench with your head down. And you're knowing, you know full well that you're going to hear the judge say guilty as he slams the gavel down. And you know that you're about to face a death sentence. And just before that... Suddenly, your advocate, your lawyer stands to his feet and he says, wait a minute! He's not guilty. Look at this. I've already paid for his crimes. And he shows the wounds on his own body. And he says, you can't punish twice for this crime. And you say, hallelujah, I can't believe it. I'm not going to be sentenced to death. I'm going to have freedom. But just as you're thinking about that and you're starting to let your heart accelerate, you hear something else. The judge stands. That's interesting. And he says, not only is he not guilty, but I'm going to give him my name And bring him into my house. I'm going to adopt this guilty one and bring him into my own house. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Now, that's a little picture of what it means to be adopted. But I think this morning, for some of us, the idea of being delivered from the sentence is sufficient. And the second aspect, the adoption into the family of God, is something that maybe you're just not so interested in. Could be. I hope not. I want to tell you a personal story this morning. This is going to be a little difficult for me. But I don't know if some of you observant folks here, and there are a few observant folks, have noticed that our son Jason Young Kwan Sable uh, hasn't taken on the presence of his German and Irish heritage. That's very observant. And that's because he spent the first six years in South Korea, where he was born. In fact, we have three children, they're all adults now, who have each come from the same country. Different places, different times. Both of our sons, however, had a very difficult start to their life. Very difficult. That left devastating imprints on their persons. Our eldest son, William Kim, uh, was abandoned at an early age. And he was found living on the street out of garbage cans. He was placed in an orphanage somewhere around four. Don't know really how old he is. The orphanage was a huge improvement. It was better than living on the street. The only problem was that um, over the next three years, he lived in five orphanages. So, although it was better than living on the street, he was never allowed to form relationships with people that he could trust. So when the adoption agency contacted us, Judy and I, they sent us three pictures. The first one was when he first came into the adoption agency, the orphanage. And then the next two were in subsequent years. And what we saw in those pictures Told a progress of, told us a story of a progression of hopelessness. And although being delivered from the streets and put into a place where he had food, he was not in a family. He was not part of a family. So the first picture showed a smiling boy that had hope and I think as he was adopted he probably assumed that he would soon be with a family. The next two pictures of his subsequent years showed a progression decreasing of hope and increasing in hopelessness and emptiness and despair. As time went on when no one was asking for him. <coughs> excuse me. He lost hope for the future. There was simply no reason to believe that things would get better. Now, as we prayed to God to give us wisdom, um, we believed that the Lord was calling us to change that situation. We made arrangements for his coming, and just before he came, just before he left home, uh, the orphanage, we sent two pictures. Um, one was a picture of some close family, friends, children, who are sitting here, and our English sheepdog, which we later found out he thought was a lion and was scared to death. <laughs> but uh, And so, so did Jason when he came. He started screaming, Saja, 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 which is lion in Korean. But anyways, we wanted him to get a sense, and we sat on the back, and we asked that the people would read it, that These were going to be his pals, and this was going to be his dog. He's going to have his own lion. The other picture we sent, believe it or not, uh, you can't see this, but it's of Judy and I in 1975. Hard to believe. Uh... Later we found out that his first impression was that we had huge noses and big eyes. (laughs) And he's right. But upon receiving the news that his uh, adoption was imminent and handed these pictures, uh, he boarded a 13-hour flight to come to New York City where we would meet him. And when we met him, his escort... They had an adult escort for the older children. He told us that William never let these pictures out of his hand. He even ate, holding on to the pictures with one hand. And he went up and down the aisles of the airplane, showing everybody our picture. (laughs) Sorry about that, you know. Because he was so excited about having a family, it meant something to him. He had hope for the first time of a new life. William Kim was excited about his new family. Were you ever that excited about your new family? Was there ever a time when you felt that kind of exhilaration and joy about being adopted into the family of God? Are you excited still? You know, if you don't know anything about this, if you don't sense any familiarity with this idea of being excited about being adopted into the family of God, be honest about it. Come and talk to one of the elders here. Talk to any of the brothers. The significance of our adoption is clear. As significant as the adoption of our three children was to them, it all pales in comparison with our adoption as sons of God. Ours is a permanent adoption. And just like the Apostle John, who understood. His sin before he was adopted, our situation was dire. I don't. I don't have to draw your attention. I don't have to have you turn to Ephesians chapter two, but in Ephesians chapter two verses one through five, Paul, oops, Paul Paul uh, goes into our prior state, and he reminds all of us about how the. You know, he starts right out with a blunt statement you were dead in verse 1 of Ephesians 2 you were dead did you know that <laughs> you were dead you weren't semi alive you were dead in trespasses and sins like william kim you had no hope of god's intervention We had no eternal future, no hope of being blessed, no possibility for true joy or ever being satisfied in this life until God touched our hearts. And that's called regeneration. That's a big word. It simply means that God gave life where there was none. He gave us a new heart. He regenerated our heart. And we see that passage in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4 But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive. Made us alive. Now, as Christians, we have all asked the question, why, at least I have, maybe you haven't, maybe you thought I'm the perfect candidate to be a Christian. I'm the perfect candidate to be adopted into the family of God. You're probably unique because I asked the question, why was I chosen? I used to pride myself at being able to swear for ten minutes without repeating myself. I had a filthy mouth. And yet God broke through all of that. Don't you just love this passage that's up behind me? Ephesians 1. I hope you love this passage. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless in love before Him. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, to Himself according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. And we, in this, in this brief passage, we, we can see the act of His choosing disclosed and, and you can see that in uh well, the laser is this? Ah, there it is. You can see that right here as he chose us. that's the act disclosed. You can see the motive revealed, and and I, I don't like the way this is broken up here, but you notice here that it says, "In love, he predestined us." adoption his motive was he loved us he loved you Kirk you Charles you Reed. you Judy he loved you how lovely were you anyhow Sandy how lovely not very lovely He loved us, and then we see the mechanism employed in this according to the kind intention of his will. God exercised his will. He loved us, and he chose us, and he took us into his family. The implications of such love... Oops... Sorry about that. The implications of our adoption are also clear, and we see them in that same text that I just showed you in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. And it's simply this. When you see the word that in a passage, or for, there's an explanation. As Hod said as he read the Scriptures, when you see the word for, it connects to something. But in verse 4, in verse one, chapter 1, verse 4b, that we should be holy and blameless. The implications of our adoption is that it impacts our life. We should be holy and blameless. You know, Ephesians, don't you, don't you love the architecture of, of Ephesians? Ephesians. You know, when you when you look at a book like Ephesians, you need to step back a little bit. You zoom out and look at the layout of the book. And you can see doctrine in the first three chapters. But chapters 4, 5, and 6 are filled with practical implications of our adoption. And that's the way the Apostle Paul writes. You can see that throughout his other epistles as well. And so you see in chapter 4, 5, and 6... Wonderful applications of the truth of our adoption. Therefore, chapter 4, verse 1, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. So based on the fact that you are a son of God, you will live this way. It's natural. It just happens. As God gives us a new heart, This is the result. You will walk in a manner worthy. And you go through this passage. And I jump to chapter 4, verse 22 here. And what I want to do is just flash these before you. And I don't think I'll even comment. Because you're so familiar with these passages. But these are the effects. This is the implication of our adoption That you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted. That you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. How do you get renewed? You're constantly in the Word. You're constantly in prayer. That's what being renewed is all about. Oh, I I don't have time for that. I'm too busy. That's why you're probably not being renewed in your mind. Does of that hit you when you read those? Does that strike you? Is that the way you live? Are you still living like this? Are you still stealing? Are you still filled with malice and envy? Are you still filled with anger? Is this the way we should or could describe you? Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Be imitators of God. You see, that. therefore. After he goes through that whole list of don't do this, be this, be that, be that, don't be that. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as what? Children. Children of God. Children of God. And walk in love. Just as Christ also loved you, gave himself up for us. An offering and a sacrifice to God is a fragrant aroma. Has anybody heard anything new there? Anybody heard anybody in, I bet you, even folks that aren't familiar with the Bible, they haven't heard anything new here. This is not new. It's just that there's a reality gap between knowing and being. I called it a reality gap. I don't know if that's an appropriate term, but it seemed to work for me. And that's when you know something, but you're not living something. In the secret of your own quiet area, you're not living this way. A reality gap. I think this reality gap is a malady that's rampant in the church. I'm not picking on our church. I'm talking about the church. And the reality gap can drive us to some unique behavior patterns. So, uh, I call that unique because I couldn't think of a better word, but maybe bizarre would be a better word. And I see this especially in Christians that have been Christians for a very long time. It can drive us to become practical hypocrites who say one thing and do another. It can drive us, much of modern evangelicalism, I believe, can drive us to become, here we come, are you ready? Write this down. Sandemanianism. Sandemanianism. Ism. Robert Sandeman lived in Scotland until he moved to the United States in something like 1760. He lived until 1781. But his interpretation of the New Covenant was that if I add any works to the Gospel, I'm violating the terms of the New Covenant. And he called that bare truth or bare faith. And there's been some recent writings amongst recent folks like Martin Lloyd-Jones, etc., that believe Sandmanianism, Robert Sandman, is, is coming alive again. And the idea here is simply this. It's mental assent. You hear the gospel, you believe the gospel, but it doesn't impact the way I live. And Robert Sandman actually made a case for this as being biblical, and he called himself a new covenantor because he said it doesn't have to impact the way I live. And this is, frankly, the difference between Islam and other faiths. Islam is outward, and it has no perspective on the attitude of the heart. It's all about what I do with my life. It's not about what I am. And mental assent is a temptation for all of us that says, oh yeah, I believe it. And then I go about my life like everybody else. And I go back to that Ephesians 4 text and I'm there, man, on a routine basis. It can also drive us to compartmentalization, sort of a Christian schizophrenia, And this is where I keep my religious life and my secular life separated. I am one thing at church, and I am entirely another thing the rest of my day and or the rest of my week. Compartmentalization. And again, I've seen this because I've been a Christian for 40 years, And it's almost hard to remember when I was saved and what I was like before I was saved and adopted into the family of God. I begin to take it for granted. And it doesn't impact my life. Well, if you sense a reality gap in your own life, my prayer for you is that it will drive you to Christ. It'll drive you to your knees and you cry out unto God who is your Father. Abba. Father. Wash me. Cleanse me. Remake me. It'll drive you to Christ. And hot red Romans 8 verses 1 through 17. I wanted the whole chapter but you know I thought people would get tired and hot more than any. But for us to understand adoption without a real understanding of Romans chapter 8 is difficult because Romans chapter 8 is replete with doctrinal treatise. This entire chapter is a comprehensive lecture on this topic of our adoption. And after explaining the contrarian positions of chapter 6, and seven, where he says, this is what it's like to live under the law, this is what it's like to be a slave of the flesh, and this is what it's like to live under the law of the Spirit, and how opposite they are. That's what Romans six and Romans seven is all about. That's your thirty-second interpretation of those wondrous statements. And in Romans seven, he's certainly not talking about uh, a Christian being under the domination of the flesh, because that's just not true. He's saying that I, by nature, am a victim of the flesh. By my nature, I am uh, a slave of sin. But as a reborn Christian, I have victory over sin, because I'm not a slave any longer. And that's what you find in this great conclusive statement in verse 12. So then, my brethren, we are under obligation. Now, this is a New American Standard. I find that the New American Standard is a little more literal. It's a little harder to read. But this idea of being under obligation is that I'm a slave of sin. I'm a slave of the flesh. I have no choice. I have to sin. And brethren, if that is you today, if you think I have no power over my sin, I just sin and I can't stop it, God tells you if you're a son of God and you're following and you're being led by the Spirit, following the Spirit, you will have victory over sin. And if you're not, we need to figure out what's wrong. We need to help you deal with that. You need to deal with it. You can't just go on saying, well, I can't do anything about it. The scripture here says we are under obligation not to the flesh, And so by implication, Paul is saying that we are under obligation to live by the Spirit. And you see this in verse 13b. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You will live. They say, well, I've tried to put to death this, this, the sins of the body, but I can't. Well, then you're not probably... Living by the Spirit. I know it sounds overly simplistic, but I think our sin makes it complicated. Sin, you know, Glenn, sin is complex, right? Sin makes everything messed up. You know, when you're living under the influence of sin, dominating in your life, things get complicated. They're all intertwined. It's hard to get at the root. But by implication, again, Paul's saying, if you live by the Spirit, for all, in verse 14, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Hmm. It sounds overly simplistic, doesn't it? These are sons of God. What does that imply? that these and these only are sons of God. If you're living in the flesh, perhaps you're not a son of God. I hope I'm not the first person to broach that subject with you. If you're living in the flesh, perhaps you're not a son of God. And then look at verse 15. Oh, this is is beautiful. Here's the purpose clause. For you, have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba. That's a familiar term. A familial term. Abba. Father. Crying out like a child cries out to his daddy. Abba. Father. Father. We were once slaves to sin. We were once obligated to sin. We're no longer obligated to sin if we're being led by the Spirit. And again, in this wonderful epistle to Romans, stepping back, zooming out, using a hermeneutical principle, that's how to understand the word, you zoom out again and say, how is, what's the architecture of this book? I made mention of Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 7. How many people have really gotten bollocksed up trying to understand Romans chapter 6 and 7 in light of Romans chapter 8 and thought that maybe Paul was contradicting himself? I would say most of us could raise our hands there, right? But he's not. He's not contradicting himself. Paul is dealing with this dichotomy between six and seven, two different mindsets. One results in the spirit of slavery, the law of sin and death, and the other with the spirit of adoption, which is under the law of the spirit in life. He's dealing with two different kinds of people. It's not complicated. It is actually simple. You are either here or there in the same sense that if you're pregnant, you're either pregnant or you're not. There's not a, I'm kind of pregnant. You are either living by the flesh, by the Spirit, the domination of the flesh, or you're living being led by the Spirit. It's simple. I didn't say it was easy to understand. It's just simple. It's not complicated. But those who have been adopted are being led by the Spirit. And that's what this, this wonderful chapter uh, 8, verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God... These are the sons of God. Now, I got to ask a question. Can I go to one o'clock? No, I'm. I'm um. Are you sure that you're adopted? Be honest with yourself. Are you sure that you're adopted? Uh, Let me tell you this, that doubts are good if they drive you to the right thing. There are times when I measure my own behavior that I doubt that I'm in the family of God. But then I turn my eyes off of myself and look at Christ. And I recognize that he was my advocate. I was that guy in that courtroom. The shackles on my wrists and on my ankles were my own sin that I was bound to. And God set me free because of what Jesus did. My wife read this and she quotes it to me oftentimes is that there's nothing I can do to make Jesus love me more. There's nothing I can do to make Jesus love me less. You believe that? Do you believe that? You? You? I believe that. I believe that. So how do I know that I'm adopted? I I asked myself this morning this question as I was preparing and praying over this message. I looked at I told Reed I, I had to stop looking at my notes. I kept changing notes and kept adding things and I'm thinking I'd be here till communion. Because this is such a rich topic. And I want to leave you with confusion. How do I know? I'm not talking about how you feel moment by moment. You know, how I feel is almost irrelevant. It's what's true that's important. You know, don't measure your adoption by how you feel, because your feelings will trick you every time. Measure your adoption by what is true in the Scriptures. Adoption observed. Um, there are three things that I want to say about adoption and how we can observe it in our own life. And frankly, I don't know where I am in the uh, circle of things, so ignore the man behind the curtain. First thing is it creates a childlike confidence and affection. A childlike Confidence and affection. For those of you that have little children, and I'm talking little children that haven't gotten to the adolescence where they realize that mom and dad don't know everything. You know, they'll go through a period of time between the ages of, I would say, 12 and 18 where they think you know nothing. And as they hit 20, 21, they begin to think you might know something. And then by the time they're 40 they think, oh, you did know a couple of things. But when they're little, they think daddy knows everything. Daddy can do anything, right? And as long as I'm with daddy, I'm safe. That's the kind of childlike confidence and affection that should be resonant in our hearts. And you see that in here. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. When we're in trouble, what do you do? When you're in trouble, what do you do? What's the first thing you do when you're in trouble? I call President Obama and I ask for help. <laughs> you cry out, Abba, Father. There's a text in Galatians chapter 4, and again, if you're writing, you can look at this later, but because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. If you never cry, Abba, Father, if you never cry out, if this is just something that you've never done, then I doubt if you're being led by the Spirit because the Spirit will lead you to do that, to cry out, Abba, help Observable childlike dependence and humility before God. Number two, it promotes a childlike obedience to God. A childlike obedience, and I mean, uh, kids, um, I, I, I know something about you children. You're not always obedient. I know that because I had three and I have two granddaughters that aren't always obedient. But there is a general trend of childlike obedience that is a general tenant of your life as someone who is a son of God. There's a wonderful little illustration in Matthew chapter 14. Write this down. I'm not going to look at it. And it's the event where the disciples are in the boat and Jesus is walking on the water towards the boat. And they're all scared to death, right? You know this text. Everybody know this text. Nod or or act like you're alive or something. Thank you. Peter says, if it's really you, Lord, tell me to get out. Command me to get out of the boat and I'll walk on water too. Jesus says what? Come. Peter gets out of the boat and begins to walk. And of course, we all know the rest of the story. We all know that what happened then was he contemplated the waves. What he did was he took his eyes off of Jesus and he began to look at the situation and he got scared. And he began to sink. You realize that in in your life as Christians, as sons and daughters of God, there may be times where God says, get out of the boat. There may be times when we leave the comfort of our boat and the security of our boat and the things that we trust and rely on and we have to walk. God says, get out of the boat and walk. If you're a child of God, you obey. And you get out of the boat and you walk. Try not to get distracted by the waves. Just walk. Keep your eyes on Jesus. The third thing, that adoption can be observed in our childlike dependence upon the Father. And this is especially observable in times of suffering. When things are going great in my life, it's easy to forget that I am a son of God. Oh yes, we acknowledge, we say, thank you, Lord, for this food, thank you for the beautiful day, thank you for my car, thank you for my house, thank you for my wife, thank you for this and that. But it's easy to, be, to forget about the moment-by-moment dependence on God. However, in suffering, it's a different scenario. In suffering, and you know, it's not a literary accident that Paul goes from the subject of adoption immediately into the subject of suffering. Because that's when our adoption is evident in our own lives. Let me ask you this, and I can personally attest to this that it's in times of suffering that I am closest to the Lord and more observant of my absolute dependence on Him. When things are going great, I think I'm I'm pretty good. But it's in times of suffering, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him. So that we may also be glorified with Him. I'll tell you, it sounds sick, it sounds, you know, unbalanced, but this is where unbelievers are flummoxed about Christians rejoicing in suffering. They don't get that. Something wrong with those people up here. But you see, when you've been through something where you, you know, the Lord knocks the pinions right out from you. So there, there's no place else to turn. I cry out, Abba, Father, and He comes and meets me in the midst of my suffering. And I've used this term, and, and you know, I, I'm sorry I repeat myself. I'm old enough that you should forgive me. I call it Grace Bubble. God creates a grace bubble around you in the midst of suffering that later when you look back at that trial, you say, how did I get through that? At the time, it didn't actually seem that awful because God created a grace bubble. Surrounds me with grace to endure the trial moment by moment dependent upon Him in the rest of chapter 8, in fact, verses 18 through 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation subjected to futility, not willingly because of Him who subjected it, but in hope. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You can keep reading in that chapter. And I hope you do. I hope you go home and just... Look at Romans chapter 8. It is, it is like air conditioning to someone who lives in Florida. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. Just ponder verses 18 to 25. And when we suffer, there are times where we just don't even know how to pray. Have you ever been there? have you been there? I don't even know how to pray. I don't know where to begin. My top is on my bottom and my you know my bottom, I my mean, inside is on the outside and I I don't even know where to begin. In the same way the spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. It's a marvelous sweet experience as a Christian to go through suffering where we learn to depend upon God. Amen? So our adoption is most likely to be manifest in times of suffering. And there's one more text that is just oodles of sweetness. It's 1 Peter chapter 1. Verses 3-8 through Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Why is that? So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's all about legitimacy. This is when we find out if we're really sons of God. God puts us into situations. He's not out of control, you know. He is sovereign. We're... These situations, and, and if you kept reading in Romans, you know, you get to that great verse at the end of the chapter, right? We know that all things work together for good. These are situations that are purposeful that come into our life. Painful, yes, but purposeful. That we might be proven to, le- to be legitimate the sons of God. I want to... give you a another illustration because adoption on this earth is emblematic or or an illustration of adoption in heaven several months after we brought William Kim into our home in 1976 we had a great time we learned enough english to be or enough korean to be dangerous and he he learned some uh, very distorted English. But anyways, uh, we, we communicated. We thought things were going very, very well. We thought he had the idea. We thought he's getting it. He knows what he, that he's now William Sable. We thought he understood that everything we had is his. And one evening, when we were tucking him in, I noticed a pile of crackers underneath his bed. He had been hoarding food under his bed. Now why would he do that? Our house was 947 square feet. He wasn't that far from the refrigerator. Why would he hoard food? Because he wasn't really sure that this was all going to work out. He wasn't really sure that he was really a sable and that he was a permanent part of our family. And I wonder how many times we're like William Kim, where we're hoarding crackers under our bed because we're not really sure that we're adopted. We're not really sure that we're the son or the daughter of a king. That our father owns this place. Our father owns this place. But we don't act like that. We stockpile things that we think we might need for later, right? We're protecting our pride because we think we might have to prove it to somebody that we're not worthless. So therefore, you need to know something about me. I went to school for nine years, and I blah, 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 blah. In the eternal span of things, that's worthless. But we protect our pride, or perhaps we're storing away our affections. Protecting those, because we don't want to get hurt. You name it, you may have your own little treasured pile of something underneath your bed. But it may be because you're not sure your father owns this place. You're the son of a king. So Christian, rest in this thought this morning. You know, I I, I would love to go into a whole thing about how Jesus is our Sabbath rest, but we're going to hear about that in the next couple of weeks. Rest in this thought. You, Mike, are the son of a king. Do you know that? Now, unbeliever, I know... I don't know y'all, and I'm trying to get to know y'all. And please don't panic if Teresa calls you and says that Al would like to come into your home. I'm not coming in with a baseball bat for church discipline. I just want to get to know you. And sometimes that's the only way to do it because you're not free for lunch or for coffee. But over the next several months, you're going to get a phone call from Teresa who's trying to book my coming around and getting to know you but if you're pretending because you happen to like to hang around with with the sons and daughters of the king, but you're pretending to be one, please be honest. Please be honest. And we'll pray with you and we'll try to help you see the glory of Christ. It's our job to lift him up in front of you and have you taste and see that he is good. He is good. Stop pretending. Stop hoarding crackers. Your king is calling for you to be forgiven and adopted. Run to him and throw yourself on his mercy. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you so much for your truth. Thank you for your word because we know your word is true. And we ask now, Lord, that you would Take this and bury it into our hearts that we might find no comfort in anything other than the safe haven of being part of your family. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.